This is Michael Melfi, and welcome to the Be Investable podcast, a series where I speak with innovative individuals who share their insights about what it means to be investable. And this week, I have the pleasure of having a virtual fireside chat with Mr. Jeff Amirin. He's the founding principal of Startup Junkie Consulting and also an active investor in the angel and venture capital space in Arkansas and around the country. I'd like to welcome you to the show. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, same here, Michael. This this should be good fun. I'm looking forward to comparing notes and exchanging some ideas. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think getting to, to meet each other, we're very like-minded, and I think that's what brought us to say, hey, we just want to kind of sit down and, and talk and share a little bit about entrepreneurship, about fundraising, about the ecosystem, and just go through things like that. Ah, it sounds great. I'm looking forward to it for sure. Absolutely awesome. And I just, I'll start out, obviously, I want to learn a little more. Where did, how did you get into the startup junkie consulting? First of all, I love the name, but where did that come from? Or what, what got you to that point? You want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So it's, it's kind of a silly name. It's a descriptive name that is stuck. In, and uh, the short answer is it was a reflection of my lifestyle. I, over the course of a long career, I spent time in three Fortune 500s, but also founded or co-founded nine startups and went through all the rigors of the ups and downs of that process. And in the business that I kind of graduated into after a long career of being an operator, both in large and small companies, was this idea of trying to help other startup founders have a bit of an easier time of it than I had. You know, it's a pathway that is, that's full of obstacles and friction points and opportunities for failure. And so, when it came time to create that kind of business, Startup Junkie seemed to be the best descriptor. And the longer <laughs> part of that is there was a, a radio show called The Sports Junkies in D.C. And I lived back there for a bunch of years. And this was an irreverent kind of 30-something group of guys that were talking about all the, the D.C. area sports. And I kind of liked the attitude and the vibe and the Sports Junkies had stuck. And you remember it. So when it came time to form this business, I gave it about 30 seconds of thought and said, well, that's descriptive startup junkie, sports junkies. I like it. It kind of reflects who I am. I've, uh-huh. I've enjoyed building things. And that's, that's where it came from. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and for those who don't know, obviously, you guys, are, you guys are down in Arkansas. You want to share a little more about what you guys do? What we do. Yeah. yeah. So it's a good question. We are, we are an entrepreneurial support organization. We're not dissimilar to a Y Combinator or Techstars. We do a little bit more breadth of things. We we probably engage from a management consulting standpoint about a thousand clients a year. We've got a team of 18 people in two different locations, varied both broad and deep skills and a whole variety of different disciplines. In addition, there's a little bit of event management company in us. And as Brad Felt said, startup communities, building a startup ecosystem as lasting has got to be event driven. So we put on about 200 events a year. And it's an unsustainable business model we've sustained now for 10 years and that all of our services are completely free. And we're able to, to get there because we've got great third-party funding from people like the Walton Family Foundation, the Small Business Administration, Department of Commerce, EBA, Arkansas Economic Development Commission, and others. Because they know that, that this is sort of the money ball play for creating and launching economy these days is through startups and small business. Somewhere between two-thirds and 85% of all net new jobs come from startups and small business. So that's what we do. We've been at it a while and the team's growing and we're having a good time of it. Awesome. Awesome. Before I, I follow up on that, I just have to, I have to ask because I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person that was good with, when I first saw that is all that's going on in Arkansas. Yeah, say, so you're and, saying and it's I, all I, the, 
Yeah, and I ask that because people ask it of me being in Detroit sometimes. Like, what's going on in Detroit? You have all that going on in Detroit. It's like, yeah, we have a vibrant ecosystem. Yeah, and so, yeah, it's a great question. And we get that a lot. I mean, this is a place that is that has been plagued with 150 years of low expectations. There's a lot of places in the South like that, in West Virginia and others. The thing that is really interesting about Arkansas is what has grown up here in the past. The Walmart headquarters is here, half a trillion dollar a year company, the, one of the largest food companies in the world, largest protein producer in Tyson Foods, largest transportation company in J.B. Hunt. So there's this interesting nucleus where we've kind of outperformed on a per capita basis of white collar talent. And as a result, there's now, because of the concentration of talent, clear understanding that we've got to diversify that big concentration we have around retail supply chain and food into other things that are not completely tied to those sectors. And so that's what's really kicked this thing off in in the last 10 to 15 years. That's awesome. Now, do you find that most of the companies that are coming to you fall in those three sectors or are you getting stuff across the board? It's kind of across the board. And part of it too is we've got a land-grant institution here. So there's stuff that spins out of the universities that's not directly tied to any of those sectors. The Mm -hmm. high-power, high-temperature electronics, for example, silicon carbide knowledge is amazing. There's been acquisitions in that area. and That's where it's sort of technology push rather than demand pull. So it's a mix of stuff that plays to the existing big flagships and new stuff as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I just, you know, when you have those third-party companies, the enterprise or the corporations that are willing to invest for multiple reasons, right? Sometimes it's they're looking for the next thing that they can grow and acquire or just acquire. It's sometimes it's that talent base. They're looking, they know that entrepreneurial, creative, innovative talent is what they're looking for. And sometimes there's an altruistic purpose to some of them, but just when you have those, it makes for such a great ecosystem that otherwise you wouldn't have because let's face it, we're startup or the entrepreneurial ecosystem is a resource. I'll use the word resource intensive area. Right. It's, it's not, it's, no not, it's question not just money, it. it's, it's time too. And how do we get that? And how can we invest that? You know, that's probably one thing that, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with is if you can't find the commitment from resource rich entities, it becomes challenging to have a strong and vibrant ecosystem. There's no question about it. If the large companies, and you, I bet you've seen this in Detroit as well, and I'd be interested in your perspective, but if they see the startup scene as a competition for talent rather than something that's accretive, rather than the place where their future competitive advantage probably falls, then you're going to get resistant or very little support. And I got to tell you, the attitude over the course of the last five years in particular has changed in a pretty dramatic way because they realize, first of all, if they're going to recruit people into here in particular from other parts of the country or worldwide, there needs to be something else for them to do in case it doesn't work out in the big company. So there needs to yep. be that vibrance of other yep. activity. And secondly, they need to have some acquisitions lined up that have more agility and a lower cost structure than what they have with the, you know, the amazing new stuff that's going to be required to make them competitive in the future. There what do you see in Detroit? You know, so I'll tell you in Detroit, I think it's across the board. I think companies realize that if it's inauthentic, people will see through it, right? So, oh, we're going to buy some companies or invest in some companies or we're going to sponsor this or that. If it's just to be out there to seem like the innovative, creative company, people see through that and the ecosystem will see through it and it doesn't last very long. There needs to be some substance to it. There needs to be authenticity. Like if you're just, if you're a corporate venture arm just investing because everyone's doing that, that's great. Yeah. And I'm glad we have yep. the money in the ecosystem. But the reason why people want that money is because you are a corporate venture 
and you do have access to the talent and resources of your company. And so they're looking for that. And on the flip side, you know, I think that the labor force and the companies and the, and the individuals are looking to see that the companies are committed to the sector and to the growth of this. And if it's just a let's do it because everyone else is doing it, that seems like how we can be cool. I, I've seen that fed die really quickly and people tend to see right through that. Yeah, it's, it's, if it's and innovation theater where... Directly, yeah, no, keep going. I was yep. going to say in Detroit, I was going to say we're seeing companies really get behind it and really get committed to it. And it's been awesome to see, you know, all around, I'll say the whole state, you know, because I joke with people and say, in Michigan, if you go from Grand Rapids to Detroit, you know, I, I'm not the up north, it's a little bit further, but if you go from Detroit, Grand Rapids, that's the same as top to bottom of Silicon Valley, basically. You know, if you're going to San Francisco, San Jose, all that area, like it's a few hours. And we have a lot of right. great talent and we're seeing companies get in and get behind these companies. We're seeing them make investments. We're seeing them provide mentorship. We're seeing them sponsor programs. And when you get that, that really matures the ecosystem. Because at the end of the day, it takes resources to grow the ecosystem up. And so when, the more they get committed, the better off. And as I've shared with you, you know, I do a lot in the ecosystem to make that happen because I think that's such an integral part. You know, and it, it's a chicken or egg. And I'm sure you've probably seen this as, well, go get good entrepreneurs and good companies, and then we'll attract the corporate partners and the investors. And the reverse side, go get the investors and the corporate partners, and it'll attract the great companies. And so I think, I don't know if you struggle with that, but I think that as I've traveled, I've seen a lot of different ecosystems will say, you know, it's like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg in that conversation? What's it been yeah, like? It's a multi-sided, it's yeah. a multi-sided market. It, it's a multi-sided market where, where it's, if you don't have harmony between the way either side grows, then the, your risk of flight or your possibility of people becoming disinterested is pretty high. And so, you know, we look at it as four pillars, kind of like we talked about talent, capital, entrepreneurial culture, and the reinforcement of that. And then the engagement from the flagship enterprises, the community and the institutions. And that when the, the big companies finally make the commitment and they have in a real way recently to say, this is important. We're going to participate in a material way in accelerator programs. We're going to be serious about inviting small companies in that we would actually do pilots with. We're going to provide time on the part of subject matter experts to provide mentorship and guidance to get these companies enterprise ready. It's some really magical things can happen when they're willing to do that. Because for one thing, the kind of talent and small companies and startups, venture scale companies you can attract improves greatly. if They know they can have meaningful conversations that are not just kind of window dressing and eyewash, but it could lead to something. And we've seen that in our fuel supply chain accelerator here within the, the last few months. Walmart's intimately actively involved. We've got other large players from the area that have spent time and resource as well. And it's paying some dividends. We've attracted nine pretty good companies that are nice. that are on a good pathway for sure. You know, along that line, and, and I'm depending on what day you catch me, depends on how I would probably answer this, but I'm going to ask you is, you know, when, when you have obviously different regions of the country have strong suits when it comes to the industries that they're entrenched sure. in. And so it's easy to take that subject matter expertise, that knowledge base that and go after early stage companies. And there's obviously a ton of pros to that. On the other side, mm -hmm. does the region pigeonhole itself by only being known as that type of player in the global ecosystem. So, you know, obviously yeah. like we talked about, we, there's obviously in, in Michigan, certain industries that kind of we're known for, you just named a few that you guys are known for. It's obviously easy to go back to those. Is, is it, do you lean on that subject matter expertise or do you get them to look at, be willing to look at other deals or what's your thought around that? 
Yeah, man, that's, that is a, a critically important question. So you play to your strengths because you've got knowledge and depth. And, and this place, this Northwest Arkansas place, is really truly the center of the universe for retail, retail tech, consumer packaged goods, supply chain, supply chain technology, and food and beverage. There's no question about that. So what you do is you figure out, well, fine, those are the verticals. What are the horizontal things that we also need to focus on that apply to multiple industries where someone could build it up, sell it to some of these companies that we have locally, but they can sell into other industries as well. So you start looking at Internet of Things, industrial Internet of Things applies to multiple industries, kind of a horizontal slice, implementation of blockchain across multiple different industry sectors. Uh, all the stuff that's happening within the wireless arena and smart farm type of technologies have applications throughout industry. So I think that those horizontal slices are where the opportunities come out to really diversify the economy and sell into other industry segments. The benefit is they can get a head start by being able to get have a real chance at dominating the sectors where we've got access and can kind of move the needle for the startups that we deal with. Totally, totally. And I just you mentioned the you mentioned the B words. So I at least want to ask you around blockchain and we'll get back to the other things is yeah, with, yeah, with yeah. blockchain there's certain people that say, Oh man, this is it. Other people say no or it doesn't apply to my industry. Do you see it only has a place in one industry or do you see it being something that ultimately can and will affect us in every way that we live our lives? I, I think like with most things, it, it's gone through a hype cycle. And of course, a lot of that's perpetuated by all the stuff that happened in cryptocurrency. And, yeah. you know, there was a guy in Oklahoma 15 years ago that had single point authoring and distributed ledger type of stuff. It wasn't called blockchain at the time. He was using it to track point of origination for cattle herds and whatnot. So it, this is not a new concept. It came into vogue when all the things happened around the financial crisis. So, But my point is, it's a distributed database with some interesting security aspects to it. It's going to be another tool. I don't know that it's the second coming of the internet or anything like that from my point of view. I think right, right, right now, in many instances, it's a solution looking for a problem and a use case that's meaningful. But that's yeah. not to say that there won't be meaningful use cases. Having lost a lot of money and spent a lot of time in international business, if you figure out a way to secure transactions across borders, it doesn't require performance, letter of credit, and all the other vagaries of that in some efficient way. There's a big market for that. It's just we're not quite there yet. The implementations have not quite gone up with the hype. Got it, got it. I, What's your I take it. on it? What do you think from what you think? You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to say ditto. I'll give some substance to that, but I, I would agree. I don't think it's a second coming of the internet. I think it does have a place and the ability to have that secure ledger, there, there is some value to that. And it just, you know, when you look at certain industries, we're like, you know, you look at a real estate industry where 37 different parties touch a transaction from what I've been, from what I've researched, you know, yeah. it makes sense that to have one place that everyone can go. I mean, if you've ever tried to do a title search, you've ever tried to deal with insurance or those things can be pretty challenging and confusing all in the same breath. And if we could streamline that and make it more efficient using something like blockchain, I see a ton of value there. You know, as you alluded to, I don't want to take your example, but the international markets and financial transactions, a lot to be said for some of those things. And so I think it has a place, but I, I would agree it's looking for, you know, it's looking it's a solution looking for a problem to solve. And I think that it's something that was going to, is here to stay where it's going to fit in. I think is still to be seen. Absolutely. You know, would you mind a little bit of a segue? Cause I've been, you've got a really interesting background and, and you're doing yeah. a lot of things that are not typical of, of a corporate attorney and whatnot. <laughs> I'm really interested in how you got pulled into this 
entrepreneurial swamp, so to speak, with a legal background. I appreciate that. Thank you for asking that. You know, I think we talked a little bit about it. I'm an entrepreneur at heart and I've always had a business of some kind. And, you know, back in 2003, four, we started working on a media publishing company and really built up built that entity up and had a really great run with that. And after we exited that, when I came back here to the Midwest, I really saw an opportunity to empower entrepreneurs to really work with in a collaborative fashion and bring the resources together to really work within this ecosystem that we had here and utilize a lot of the the rich and vibrant resources we had and connect them. And, you know, being that the, the lawyer, it was an opportunity for me to really be able to connect and really work with companies and, you know, being able to not just be able to be able to work with them and do a lot of the early stage legal work, but also understanding how to run the business. So that, that COO type role, how do we really drive enterprise value? You know, as I think I shared with you, I, my clients range across the board from back of a napkin idea to inventors all the way to lower middle market companies. And a lot of my partners you know, at the firm do stuff on a much larger scale. And so I'm able to see and have exposure to a lot of the bigger deals that are out there. And one of the things that I realized is that deals get done because people can drive enterprise value. Businesses grow because stakeholders gain value through enterprise value being driven. And so I've really just always seen that as a principle of how we can do that. How can we help emerging companies? How can we help growth-oriented organizations, privately held growth-oriented organizations, drive their enterprise value, a term that you usually don't see talked about? And so, you know, it's been something that's been something that I've been working on. How do we look at their vision? How do we look at their culture? How do we look at their strategic planning? Obviously, the legal underlies all of that. Just like I've kind of always thought of myself as something a little more than probably your traditional lawyer. How am I, how can I bring value? How can I help them grow their business? Because I always knew that if I could help them grow their business, it allowed me to interact with lots of parts of the ecosystem. And and ultimately, as the businesses go, as you've alluded to, small business, the growth of those drive the economy, drive jobs. And so I saw that as an opportunity. And I've really just doubled down on that throughout my career and how we can do that. And so having been on the investor side, having been the entrepreneur, now I'm technically a professional service provider is what they label me as. But I like to think I bring a lot more to the table than that, because it's an opportunity to really get in and work with someone and help them grow their business. And, you know, it's been an interesting journey and a great journey working with thousands of companies to really help them be able to ultimately do what it takes to be investable. And, you know, because at the end of the day, they're going to need something. They're going to need to be able to grow. And at the end of the day, if you want to get that, you have to demonstrate to someone else you are investable. And so it's been more than just having the legal documents. And I realized there was kind of a gap. And I think probably when this really came to me was I was doing a lot of legal work for early stage companies. And it would have been back in 2000. 13, 2014, when crowdfunding really came on the scene. And I don't know how you feel about it, but when crowdfunding came, I said, oh, great, we are going to democratize fundraising. This is what we've needed. Everyone can raise capital. All these great companies are going to get what they need. And so here I am doing legal work and we're doing some of the Reg D stuff. And I've been doing IP work for all these companies. And I'm like, great. You know, some people are great at raising money. Others aren't. This is going to allow them to do that. And it was really interesting to see. And over time, what companies have been successful with just fundraising and crowdfunding and everyone wasn't getting it. And it was like, it made me really realize that no matter how great of a lawyer you are, no matter how great of an accountant you are, no matter how great of a business development or processes or sales driven person you are and bringing those resources to the company, to the entrepreneurs, if certain things aren't there, they're not going to be successful, no matter how much knowledge and resource you bring them. And so that's that's kind of been... That's what's been what's, you know, kind of created how I work with companies. It's allowed me to really, I think, create a niche 
practice that has a really strong legal background and be able to provide those you know, substantive pieces, whether it be entity formation, corporate governance, any type of employment or equity compensation, obviously the IP piece that we talk about, those things are the really important, the contract negotiation, those are kind of the fundamental toolbox of what you need your lawyer doing. And great, now that you have that, you know, I always kind of tell my clients, I'm like, I'd love to do the document for you. But first, tell me why this document's important and how you're going to monetize your business because of this. And because I want to know they have a plan for what they're going to do. And so it's, it's kind of just been how I've always, always looked at how do we create value. And it's something that I've carried forward in how I do what I do today. No, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing how many times there's sort of kind of a winding path to the opportunity, the position, the, the calling, if you will, that we're all kind of drawn to. And for me, the same thing for me, I had never had any expectation that I would someday be in the kind of organization we're in today, but it was really everything else that I've done up to this point kind of built the point to prepare me to do what I do today to support the entrepreneurs. And the thing that I think is kind of mind blowing, and I was picking it up from what you're saying is if you can fundamentally get the founding teams, the leadership teams to understand that they have two main functions in life and that's problem solving and then risk management. And the more yeah. risk they can remove from their venture, that's kind of the inverse of saying the more value they can add, the better chance they're going to have in raising money. And a lot of times entrepreneurs won't connect with the fact that investors are oftentimes the good ones that do lots of transactions thinking about what's the downside on this and what right. are they doing to mitigate all the ways that this thing can fail. And if they take that kind of mindset, then they can put themselves in the shoes of good investors who most times are operators as well that have been in their shoes and they know all the traps and the pitfalls. But I would imagine coming from a legal perspective, that stuff becomes kind of second nature. You're anticipating or seeing where some of these risks fall and are in a position to really help these companies think that kind of stuff through. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, obviously they show up and you, you set up their entity and you may don't hear from them for a while and you're wondering what's happened to them once they've left you or you do one document for them and they go away. And I started to realize that there's more that they need. And really, you know, at that, there's great resources like you guys happen to be in. There's great resources in Michigan. There's great resources there more than likely not look at statistically you know most small businesses most startups don't make it so what can we do to increase that opportunity for them you know what what information can we provide them how can we help them so that they can be more successful and, and so that's one thing you know i was just talking today with some groups because at the end of the day everyone seeks out money they look at that as the result they really need right i don't know how many times sure. how many times does someone come to you and say can you just help me raise money and I don't know if that for you, how many times yep. that's happened, but pretty regularly, right? <laughs> yeah, about four times, four times a day at least. <laughs> and, yeah, right. And I would say, I would say for me, it's the money's not the issue. There's what three trillion dollars right. sitting on the sideline for deal flow right now, and in, in the different verticals and asset classes. And you're saying the money's not the issue. You don't know how to make the ask, or you're not prepared, or you know, in my terms, you're right. not investable yet. And so, how do we really get someone to be investable? How do we get them ready for that? You know, and it's not giving them a pitch deck. It's not doing their financials. Yes, those are pieces. But when you think about the mindset of the investor, you know, you look at, obviously, at the end of the day, to get into the investor's mindset, you need to understand what they're looking for. And the best way I explain how people become investable is you think of any relationship in your life 
with a person with an organization or anyone else you're be interacting with. And at the end of the day, your ability to demonstrate attributes for yourself or your company to another person in such a way that they present value will allow that other person to give you what you're asking of them. And that's, to me, that's, I mean, it sounds super basic when I say it, but that is the cornerstone of anything creating success in your life, whether it be a personal, professional relationship, anything you do where there's an interaction with someone or something else, you have to be able to demonstrate that your attributes are such that someone would want to give. So for example, you and I connected. If I hadn't demonstrated something to you when we first met, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So there was some value that I convinced you to give me something of your resource, which is your time, right? And vice versa. And that's every interaction you have. And for entrepreneurs, it's so important that they really have that skill down and they figured it out for their company because now you're asking for someone to give you usually money. And let's face right. it, they're taking, they're taking a resource which they work or their business works to get or they have and they have an obligation to typically, unless it's a nonprofit or social enterprise or some other that maybe isn't as focused on this, there's an obligation to deliver that back with more than it started with right? A return on their investment. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, how do you, that's, we're not really taught that in grade school or high school or college. Like no one ever sits down and talks to you about, Hey, when you get done, you got to create value with whatever you took from the person who gave it to you. And usually with an entrepreneur, that's money. It's so true. And on the other side of that, a lot of times, there's this opinion in some people that are raising money, either from angels or venture funds, that somehow it's just this fountain or this well, and the, you know it's it's going to be a, a trivial process to go through. You got a great product and it's an interesting market, but many times, and this is true with an enterprise sale as well as getting an investment deal done, what they're buying is could very well be a whole lot different than what you're selling. And what I mean by that is it's super important to understand what their agenda is, what they're trying to achieve, what else they have in their portfolio, what result they're trying to get. Oftentimes, people spend an inordinate amount of time pitching the wrong investors, going after the wrong funds because they haven't done just a competent job in evaluating what else is in the portfolio. What's their investment thesis? What's the stage? What sectors yeah. are they interested in? And it's, you know, it's, and it's an irritating thing. It's kind of fundamental, but it doesn't, it happens all too often. You're so correct. It's, it's something that, you know, you and I, it's like second nature, right? So as we're talking with someone, you're asking questions, you're realizing, wow, they're not ready. But in their world, they're like, well, I need money tomorrow because I need it for my business, either to start or we're running out of cash. And it is, you know, I, and that's why I just love the book when it, she kind of went through and cracking the code around it. It just, it's so important. You're talking about Judy, have, Judy Robinette? Yeah, her book is just great. and just It's, you know, it's talk, awesome. Yeah, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too because it really gave like a step-by-step guide because it is a process and no different than you would build, in my opinion, if you are going to raise capital, obviously there's some companies that don't go raise capital, but if you are going to raise capital, it's, a, it's you have to build a process and a system and have the resources no different than you would for sales, no different than you would for marketing, no different than you would exactly. for operations, no different than you would for legal or finance. It's part of your, you know, the term you we use, it's part of your blueprint. And if you don't have that right. in there, you know, as you said, it's a full-time job. It's not something you show up and do on Friday nights from six, five to six o'clock because it's convenient. It's something you right. have to be committed to. And at the end of the day, the person on the other side is going to definitely ask a lot of challenging questions and really make sure that you have a chance to be able to be that whatever they're looking for in that return on their investment. No doubt. 
And, I, and I'll tell you too, Michael, on that whole point, there's many times when, and, and I'm an active investor of a portfolio of 85 investments, either through the funds that I've run or directed investments yeah. over the course of the last eight years or so. But I try to talk people out of it. I try to, I try to convince them every way possible, kind of a Socratic interrogation to say, to understand fully why they think they need to raise the capital. Is there any way else that they can grow the company on the back of of customers funding on better operating cycles, on debt, on whatever else it is. Yeah. And it's not because I don't want them to raise. I just want no. them to understand yeah. what they're getting into. It's 50% of their time once they go down that yeah. path of speed, series A and B, and they've got to be ready for it because it's a grind and it's never easy. Well, you know, it, it's so funny you say that. Like I'll, I'll tell someone or I'll be talking with them. I'll be like, okay, so we're going to draft this contract and you want to go out and get a sale. Great. That's perfect because you're taking the time to go prove that you have a customer. You're proving that you can get traction. You're proving that you can generate revenue, which is ultimately going to be how that investor gets an exit, right? They're looking for that. And it's just, it's so interesting. Sometimes people say, well, I'm going to go get the investors. And I'm like, why don't you go sell a customer, take the cash in from them and then go use that to build your product roadmap, right? To ask them what they need, add onto your product roadmap and you can build it with that. And I mean, it's funny, we did a great event with one of the founders of a company in Ann Arbor. It's been really successful. And he talked about how the first five years, the founders both kept their jobs and they used their customer and they were very upfront about it. Yes, we can add those feature set for you. Yes, we can do that for you. It's going to cost us much money. And it may, instead of being one month, it's going to be two months because we do this on nights and weekends and with contractors. But you know what they did? They built a company that's been very, very successful and they never, took outside investing till they took a round of 70 million as their series a and so it was like yep. <laughs> they had never taken any money in because they had been that successful and so it was just it was very interesting to watch how they did that because they did exactly what you said they built the company on the back of their customers and there's a lot to be said for that you call it bootstrapping call it what you want but a lot of people right. don't take the time to do that well funded customer no, discovery I, I right funded cus- yeah go ahead yeah. No, no, keep going. Go ahead. Funded customer discovery. Well, I was going to say, it's funded, it's funded customer discovery in that fashion. And, and if you get some sales traction, you show the increases in monthly recurring revenue or annual recurring revenue, and you start to hit some of those milestones, then you've got all kinds of options. You're not going to have the, the angst around valuation. You're going to get the deal structures you want when you ultimately raise. I always try to challenge our clients to really think that through. And if there's any way possible that they can maintain market advantage by not raising money immediately up front, they ought to go do that. They're going to live a happier life if they can raise yeah. less money and or raise more money later once they've already got a lot of traction. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to get out of the soapbox, but I will say this. I think we've done a disjustice at times to entrepreneurs and emerging companies because all we see is the headline of so-and-so company just raised this much money. Company XYZ raised this much money. And so we've kind of almost brainwashed everyone that unless you go raise money, you can't do it. And there was a day when people did it the way you and I are talking about it. And I'm not saying don't raise money. I don't want anyone listeners to think that. And there's definitely a time and a place for it, but it's become almost like a handicap. And then, you know, I've had companies just say, well, we can't raise money. We got to close our business. I'm just like, I'm almost like shocked when they say that. I'm like, Right. I don't think that's why you got to close your business. <laughs> it's not because you couldn't raise the money. I think you're, you're not problem. selling anything. You need to pivot. <laughs> right. right. You're not selling anything, or you need to make a couple pivots and go sell something, and you'll be able to raise the capital. So, it, it's well, really you're right. I want to ask you right. this: is go ahead. sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say you're right that we, was, we was, have we've got a we've got the this situation where we celebrate raising capital rather than celebrating increases in sales, and I think that's upside yeah. down. Raising capital is a necessary yeah. evil so that you can continue to grow and sell, but let's celebrate customer sales and not raising money. 
<laughs> Let's, I'm going to use a cheesy line. Let's go ring that bell, right? I mean, that's what it's about. Exactly. Ringing that bell, making something happen. I want to switch gears a little bit. I mean, because I, sure. I know the natural question is, I'm going to ask you, what do you feel entrepreneurs struggle with the most? Because if, if, if I was asking the entrepreneurs, it would be, they'd probably say raising capital, finding good talent, right? The kind of the standard ones you hear that they struggle with. I happen to have some different opinions, but what do you think entrepreneurs struggle with the most? I, well, I think so. those are the obvious answers. And depending upon where you are, you know, getting the right technical talent can matter. But I think that they, they start the process in the wrong spot. I don't think they spend enough time answering the why question, understanding the purpose of why do they need to create this company at all and building strong, uh, strong culture and good core values. I think all too often, particularly for tech founders, that's kind of an afterthought because it's not necessarily interesting to them. And they don't realize that if they set the foundation on a great culture, a lot of the rest of these things are going to happen naturally because you're going to have better talent. You're going to be a place where people want to work. You're, you're not going to have the churn of people leaving because it's a grind. You've got to have people together around a common set of values and a vision and purpose. So I think one of the things they struggle with, is they overlook the fact that that's really important. Even though it's talked about a lot, there's, you yeah. still don't see a lot, of, a lot of work on it. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I can tell you from where I sit, you know, it's always, it's always unfortunate when you have to help wind down or wrap up a company because people couldn't get along. And exactly. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced it. We see it more than we probably want to admit to. That's a common problem because people didn't take the time to have a common vision, didn't take the time to make sure the purpose was in alignment, didn't have clear set outcomes and and expectations of each other, so to say. And they definitely, definitely didn't take the time for culture. You know, we'll, we'll often recommend companies work on that. And they'll be like, well, we only have two people. We only have five people. Why does that make a difference? Well, that defines how you do your sales. It defines how you make hiring decisions. It defines how you do sure. your compensation. It defines the type of resources you're going to need, the type of investors you're going to get. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that's so important. And it's just funny, you'll hear him say it. And it's just, you know, at the end of the day, the team, the team, the team, the people is so important to the success of an organization. And most critically at that early stage. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And the, the yeah. first five people in, in a startup are the ones that set the foundation for the culture. Yeah. It, it's yeah. critically important, for sure. Yeah, I, I totally couldn't agree more. And it's just, it, it's funny because I will, obviously, you know what I do. And sometimes I get, they come to me and want me to solve a problem, which is typically I got a legal issue or I got a fundraising issue, right? Like, hey, can you, can you introduce me to some investors? And that's not their, probably their usual issue. And it, it's almost sometimes hard because they don't want to hear that because they know what's wrong with them. It's like, ah, look right. at your symptoms and that's not what's wrong with you. you know? Right. <laughs> you know? yeah, it's, yeah. it's absolutely true. And Michael, I'd be curious of your perspective around, as you reflect on the ecosystem that you're tied into, mm -hmm. you know, how do you feel about the how the ecosystem's maturing, what's missing, what wakes you up in the morning, you think these are some kind of critical problems we got to continue to work on or solve. And I've got in, some opinions on what we see down here. I'd be curious in your neck of the wood. I was going to say, we have to share that question then, but yeah, I'd, I'd love that. And I, I think, you know, so we do a monthly event, you know, that pitch club that I shared with you. And what's been awesome is, mm -hmm. you know, we see half the room, about 55% are entrepreneurs. So we know there's people out there that are always interested in showing up that have ideas that are inventors that own companies. So they're there. It's vibrant. There's no question, you know, you know, look at some of the, the advertising where the Motor City hostels out there in, in Detroit, you see that, you know, but across the state, it's not just Detroit. We got a very strong 
group of entrepreneurs, very creative. We have great talent coming out of the universities. I think the people part of it, we have figured out. I don't think that's gone anywhere. So I think that part's going really well. When you look at, you know, we'll ask who are the service providers, about 10 to 15%, really about 12% on average of the room is service providers. The professionals who are helping, the lawyers, the accountants, the consultants, the the people who have companies that can do the digital development, the digital, excuse me, digital marketing, the development. We have decent service providers out there. In fact, I'd argue really good service providers. We've had some successes with some companies. We have some really talented groups that are able to provide professional services to those entrepreneurs. So check on that one too. You know, when you look at the programming, you look at the events, there's always something going on. The good news is, is that the co-work spaces, the incubators, the accelerators across the state, the smart zones are doing a great job of really promoting this ecosystem and keeping things going. You know, if I had to look to two areas where I would say, hey, we probably have some room for improvement. And, and this is probably st- just statistically speaking, you know, Michigan represents, a, you know, probably less than 6% of the venture capital money being invested. The ability to continue to track. And I can tell you, you know, if you talk to the Michigan Venture Capital Association, we've done a great job of getting that number to increase. We got to keep getting that up. We got to get more funds. I, I saw, I was at a new angel group meeting earlier this week, and there was something like the companies that are currently invested need something like $405 million. And we've identified as a region, there's only 200 and I think $30,000 of funding available. So there's a, there's a gap there. You know, so I, I think how do we get more money off the sidelines? How do we get people who have had exits into the game? you know, kind of getting back in, being investors, have people have already been to that rodeo and getting them to get involved. You know, it was super promising to be at the event that I was just at and see a room full of angel investors, investor capitalists saying, hey, we want to do more. We want to be more involved. I think that's definitely one area. And I think another area where we've done great and it only can get better because again, the entrepreneurial ecosystem requires resources. And that to me, those are the ability for additional funding, add-on funding, and even the early stage funding, getting those companies early on off the ground. The second part is that mentorship, that corporate connection, that corporate sponsorship, the ability to have that first customer, the ability to have the cardinal knowledge of an industry or the subject matter expertise can make all the difference for these companies between making the right and wrong pivot, having enough resources. Because you know, if left to themselves, they have a finite number of resources and they have to mitigate risk, as you said. And if they don't, they're out of business. If we can get the professionals, the corporate partners in who can give them the guidance, who can give them the advice, it helps mitigate that risk and increases the chances of success tremendously. And so for me, if, as I look through that ecosystem, I think we're doing a lot of things right. I think there's a few areas that we can continue to grow and just continue to improve upon. I think, you know, you guys have had a couple great exits. You know, we just obviously had a recent one that everyone talked about with the duo to Cisco exit. And obviously the more exits you can have like that, or just the more exits in general you have draws attention, gets more talent coming through, you know, it gets more companies interested. And I think the one other thing that I'll say that isn't a a regional thing, it's interesting. And I'm really kind of against this idea of people trying to lure other companies away. I know it happens for economic development reasons. I know it happens for, you know, investor reasons, but you know, there's, if I really like to, whenever possible, entice a company to, to be homegrown if possible. I know that's not always possible. I know that. I, I absolutely know that, but it, it, I hate to see, I hate to see regions fight over the talent, you know, as opposed to kind of nurturing each other and supporting each other as a collaborative network. 
And, and I think that's one thing that I'm pretty big about as I travel around the country is, is, is how can we collaborate with this as opposed to you coming and saying, hey, I want to see what talent I can bring to my region or take from your region or but how do we bring it together and how do we continue to collaborate and continue to bring it up? Because when you look on that international studies and some of the countries out there that have been able to be successful at that, it's made a very big impact as a country on their entrepreneurial ecosystem. And so that's been one thing that I think in the future, we as a country will need to start to address. Right now, we're still having our ecosystems mature, but how do we, as this be, continues to become a global uh, ecosystem, how do we as a country come together and collaborate? Now, it's, those are good insights and, and not dissimilar to my own. And your last point in particular, the idea of, and it generally speaking, the old economic development strategy was all about providing a lot of incentives and attracting smokestacks and getting a big chunk all at one time. You can do some of that, particularly if you've got talent gaps in certain areas more efficiently at a smaller level. But the way I've always sort of philosophically looked at that, people say, well, why would you ever as an investment fund invest in a company that's based in New York, that's in supply chain or retail tech, or one that's in Kansas City or one that's in Dallas? And the main thing is, you know, if they get a deal with a large company that's here in our backyard, they're going to build account management folks here. I don't care if they necessarily move their headquarters here. Exactly. Maybe they need to exactly. leave it where it is, but then it's a win-win. You're getting high wage rate there. They're getting a great contract they need. You haven't displaced a whole bunch of people from wherever the company may be from. And we've always kind of viewed it as we are too small not to build positive bridges to other places rather than trying to have it be a win-lose where let, well, let's attract them here and sorry, wherever they came from, you lose, we win. I just think that's a short-term strategy. So I couldn't agree with you more on that point. Absolutely. Thank you for that. You know, and, and I, I guess my question, you know, kind of, do you see very similar for your ecosystem or where is your ecosystem when it comes to some of those things as far as entrepreneurs, professional service providers, things like that? So it's a mixed bag. And I would say, you know, it's like Brad Felt said, this is a 20-year march where the first 10 years resets every year. So, so it's really a 30-year march. And we're 10 years into it in a real kind of material way. So we do, we have good professional talent, good depth of subject matter expertise. We don't have enough seasoned entrepreneurs because we haven't had enough exits to reinforce that belief so that people will will launch out and do this so that investors will will get involved with early stage companies. The seven to 15 year wait that you have for exits in flyover country, just because there's a lack of deal density, you tend to lose the belief of the early stage investors. They look at it as an asset class and you think about doing other things. So we got to change that dynamic where we have more frequent exits, where we have maybe some venture debt deals that are providing more regular return. And we're working on all that. We have gaps at the Series A gap level, we have good growth equity funds that are growing up here that are sort of later stage, one to 10 million and beyond type of investments. Big Series A gap, we're working to, to fill that. We're also, we've got a bunch of people here, a huge number per capita that are SEC accredited investors, but a very small percentage that are active angels. So we've got to do a better job with investor education. And the thing, the reality of it is, is that people that have grown up in corporations are not going to be as likely to be investors as entrepreneurs who have built companies and exited because they don't understand the lifestyle, the approach, or the demands at all, typically. And so we've got to do a better job of getting the entrepreneurs that have had good returns and good exits re-engage, make sure that they don't take their chips and move to Austin or somewhere else, but that they stay local and build something new. And we've had some good success in that, but we need to do a lot more. And I would say the other thing is we're underperforming in terms of full stack 
software development talent. If we did nothing else but all day, every day, figured out how to turn the universities and, and the non-academic alternative programs into high gear to where we put out more great software development talent, it would be beneficial because we can't import it quickly enough. And some of the companies that are here have to look to other locations when they begin to scale because they can't find everything that they need here in terms of software development talent. So those are, those are some yeah. of the challenges we work on every day. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Thank you for sharing that with me. You bet. I, I, I shared I shared with you when we were we were preparing to hop on our little virtual fireside chat here that I was going to ask you one question and I, I'd like to ask you this one now. Is this the Be Investable podcast that you know I have and, and I talk a lot about being investable. When you hear that from your position and all the success you've had and all the investments you guys have made and everything you, you've seen in the ecosystem, what does that mean to you when someone says to be investable? You know, the thing about it is, and I like that term a lot, and I would say if you're going to build as a founder a company that's built to last, if you go into it with the mindset that you're going to build something that's durable, you've got repeatable processes, you've got the best talent that you can find, you've got a great culture, you're going to be investable. So if you set the foundation for a great company in a fundamental way by attracting the best talent, being targeted, becoming a master of the industry that you're trying to serve, you're going to be investable and you got to work at it. And it's as much substance as it is sizzle. So if you work at building a great foundation for the company, telling the story is going to be that much easier. The one thing I have to say that I absolutely hate, and we've seen some really epic examples of it, is this idea of faking it before you can make it. Anybody comes in here with the attitude to me that they're going to sell me on a PowerPoint presentation and they'll, they'll figure it out when they get to it. I can't stand that. I want people that are going to have substance that are going to be candid and true about where they really are and not try to blow a smoke screen through. That whole idea of faking it before you make it is the wrong mindset to take if you really want to build a company that's going to last and if you want to raise investment. Because we find out, you know, progressive disclosure will kill a deal. If you're not telling me the truth, I'm going to find out. We're all in the investment game, and I know you know this, pretty good forensic investigators. We will find where the cracks are in what you're doing and the stuff that you're not disclosing. So I, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but that's what it is to me. No, I love it. I love that, and I appreciate you sharing that with me. And you're right. It is it is so important. You got to have substance. Again, how do you have that value? And it's interesting you brought that up. I was going to ask you that. We didn't really get much into pitch decks. But one thing that's real interesting is I go back and forth. And a lot of times when we are getting to the point that we do, you know, someone's going to go raise capital and they do put a pitch deck together. You know, I often make a recommendation. I always say this is optional, but I'd be upfront with my investors and tell what are the challenges? What are the obstacles? What don't you have figured out? Because if you aren't honest about that, they're going to figure it out. And now you've given them more reasons to say no, right? Like it's easy to say no for investing. Takeaway is you said loss or risk mitigation. And so if someone can do that in their pitch deck, and again, there's different people say never do that. And, and, I, and I like your approach. It's like, you'd rather be as transparent as you can because we're going to, we're for friends, you use your words, forensics investigators. We're going to figure it out. It's just a matter of time. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Exactly. And you burn a lot of bridges when you're not upfront about stuff. I can remember yeah. one instance in particular where somebody had received a cease and desist letter before they were getting ready to make a major presentation. They didn't say anything about it during the presentation. It was material to the growth of the business. And they ended up getting, you know, getting an investment based on that presentation and disclosed it afterward. It was part of an accelerator program. And in the, the level, this particular individual has, will never recover to the level of trust he would have had if he'd just been upfront about it. So those sorts of things are, I think, critical and crucial. And in fact, 
part of this that I was really struck by is one of my favorite authors recently of stuff that's related to our space is Adam Grant out of um, Wharton. And his most recent book that I've read is called The Originals. And he talked about one entrepreneur that would do his whole presentation around the reasons why someone, an investor, shouldn't invest. Here's the reasons why this company will probably fail. And then he proceeded to say, and here's what we're doing to mitigate these risks. And it's instant credibility. It's like you're, you're bearing exactly what the challenges are with the business and you're showing the maturity to say, but we're working on solving all those issues. They tend to believe someone like that rather than assuming that it's this kind of hide and seek game. You're 100% correct. I love Adam. I love that book. And I love that example that he gives because I feel I feel that's such a great way to approach it, but so many people don't want to. And I think I think you're, you're right. It's just you go out, you get the skills, you get the knowledge, you really start to have the right mindset. And when you go talk to people, you'll demonstrate the value. And the, exactly. we're all investing knowing you don't have it all figured out. If you had it all figured right. out, you'd be printing money and you wouldn't need us. So we know exactly. that it's risk capital. So now knowing that, like that's the, that's the baseline, let me just know where the risks are and how you plan to mitigate them or where you need me to help figure it out or where you may need additional resources or capital to figure them out. It's that simple. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Awesome. We've covered a lot of landscape here. Is it we time have, to land the plane? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I cannot thank you enough for your time. I love the conversation and I'm looking forward to, I'm sure we're going to do this again very soon. Well, Michael, I really appreciate it. And, and I look forward to building a great bridge between Northwest Arkansas and where you are there in Michigan. And hopefully we can do uh, more collaboration in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Sure thing. Take care. You too. Yep. Thanks again for listening to another amazing episode of the Be Investable podcast. My name is Michael Melfi, and I want to invite you to grab a copy of our recently released magazine. You can get it by going to www.getinvestable.com forward slash magazine. Just go there, put in your email address, and you'll get a copy sent to you. I want to thank you so, so much for listening. And if you're looking for how you can get more information about how you can be investable, about what you can do to transform your business, go to www.getinvestable.com and sign up for a strategic call with one of our certified advisors. Once again, I want to thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us on the next episode.